Hello and welcome to 13. 13 is a podcast about being and creating. In this podcast, we acknowledge the mundane and celebrate the everyday. Here, we read, interact and share our experiences with an intent to be and to create. I'm Shantesh, your host for today. Let's get started. A few weeks ago, we touched upon the topic of Ikigai on our podcast. We saw that Ikigai is a Japanese concept about finding one's purpose. That episode was quite personal to me. I've always been inspired by the Japanese culture and the way of living they bring. And during the research for that particular episode, I came across our today's guest. Our guest for today is a very young, accomplished British-Japanese writer. She also works as a director at a social media agency. She has written several books and articles inspired by the Japanese food, lifestyle and culture. She loves cooking and she has been featured on the BBC, Vogue and many other publications of great repute. She was brought up in Tokyo and has lived in Seoul, New York and is currently based in London. So basically she has been around the world and has experienced different cultures. She is the author of the book Japanism. Her name is Erin Nimi Longhurst. Welcome Erin. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. To be honest, I was a bit hesitant in approaching you for our podcast and I thought that we've not known each other. There's no mutual connection whatsoever between us and our channel is quite young and that not many outside of India know our channel. All reasons aside, when I wrote to you, Erin, you were so cordial, warm, and so prompt in your responses. You gave me that space and made me feel welcome. Thank you so much for that, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, and for me, it's such an honor for you know someone to have been inspired or to have engaged with my work. So I'm really honored to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So. Let me just start by sharing my personal journey with the Japanese culture. Since my childhood, I have been fascinated with Japanese landscape, the culture and the precision with which the people work there, some of the post-World War stories that my mom told me, and many things about Japan that I can't even mention that have really inspired me. One such instance is that I recollect is When I first moved to London over a decade ago, I came across a Japanese batchmate of mine who later became a good friend. This incident happened on one of the bus trips in the initial weeks after moving to London. The bus trip was organized by my university and it started pretty early in the morning. And we were visiting and studying several architectural projects and then so on and so forth. But basically we were pretty hungry by late afternoon. I distinctly remember that at Canary Walk, one of the tutors uh, bought us fresh uh, tangerines for all of us. We were so hungry that we immediately peeled it and gobbled sometimes two or three segments at a time. And this Japanese friend peeled the tangerines so patiently, she opened it like a flower. It was quite crafty. And she said that you're supposed to eat it like this and offered a segment uh, to the ones who were around her uh, very gently uh, with with really great care and 
you know uh, compassion towards the other person that moment was very different in my experience the world around almost paused it was probably my first hand experience of a japanese living and for her it was nothing really special for her it was like this is how you're supposed to eat it now you were brought up in japan and you spent your initial years there i suppose uh, tell us how it was growing up there how did it shape you yeah that um i love that story about the the sort of tangerine because it really just encapsulates how i guess the approach is very considered you know you do the same actions but i think that really inspired me growing up so my mother is japanese uh, my father uh, is english but i lived in japan uh, in tokyo as a as a child um and i'd go back you know when my family eventually moved to new york i'd go back to japan twice a year um but my i was very kind of inspired and influenced by my japanese relatives um but i think in particular my grandfather who was a businessman and had a very you know hectic uh busy life in in tokyo but on the weekends would go back to uh, a home he had in kamakura which is a city of just over an hour outside tokyo it's near the sea um kind of near the mountains as well and his approach and just really inspired me growing up i think he had so much respect for nature and food and i think a lot of what i ended up writing about was really influenced by him but also my other relatives as well so one of the things i write about is ikebana which is flower arranging one of my aunts uh is very accomplished at that another one of my aunts um is an expert in tea ceremony so she's been practicing it for almost 30 years now and those practices and the approach you take really inspired my upbringing and um, my mother is a amazing cook as well so i write a lot about japanese food as well and that's kind of what led me to um my book really i i started writing about my influences growing up as part of a blog and just wanted to share um you know some of those bits in, in a way that's really easy to understand and accessible because i think often when you write when anyone writes about another culture it tends to be from an academic perspective and you know not particularly uh light reading i suppose or in a way that's created for you know layman and people just who wanted to find out more because of their interest um rather than a academic exercise so that's really what drove me to share and 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 write japanism as a book i really loved reading and i realized that in a short span of about 3 years now since it was first published or rather less than 3 years in fact that your book has gained a wide publicity and it has been published in over 20 languages i understand that's quite an accomplishment did you expect that people across different geographies around the planet would receive it this way 
Not really. I mean, I think it was also a bit of a surprise for my publishers as well, to be honest. I don't, I think they saw it as a small kind of gift book and, you know, having all the different countries and markets pick it up has been amazing. I think for me personally, you know, sometimes I don't even know it's coming out in a new language and suddenly I have, you know, a lot of people following me from, you know, um, you know, another new country and that's so it makes me so happy because I think there is so much, not misconception, but I think a lot of what has been shared about Japan to date, you know, especially if you see it on the TV and stuff, tends to be from like a very Western perspective. And yes, I'm half English, but I speak Japanese. I grew up with the culture and it's been so nice for me to express and share part of my, my culture and not another person's interpretation of it, I suppose. Uh, and so I think the fact that it has been published in over 20 languages now is still um, mind blowing to me today, but it makes me incredibly happy as well. And Ryo Takemasa's illustrations are quite amazing. They're so fresh and they're, uh, they, they really hold the essence, I feel. How did that collaboration happen? So for Japanism and my second book as well, the my publishers and they, we have amazing kind of art directors who, who work on it, but it was really important, as I mentioned sort of previously, to kind of explain Japan from someone who is part of the culture, I suppose. And I think we really wanted a Japanese illustrator to be part of it. And I think his images in it are so, there's something so simple about them, but so beautiful and they evoke so many things and it's exactly what we wanted to get across uh in in the book and your book actually starts i think with one of your instances recollecting your memory with your grandfather your grandfather from your mom's side and i think he has a pivotal role to play in developing that keen interest in Japanese lifestyle for you, I believe. He gave a window through which you were able to experience the Japanese living and the culture quite vividly. Would you like to share some of those connections between your exchanges with your grandfather and the book that you've written? Yeah, I suppose the thing that really struck me about writing the process of writing the book and I ended up writing the book really shortly after he had passed away but I'd only really you know when you grow up in something and you're a child you don't really maybe you're listening but you're not perhaps absorbing it and it was only when I started working myself you know I had graduated from university and I was in a job for the first time and finding myself decompressing using the ways that I would have seen him do I think that really sort of uh, uh, affected me um, a lot and there's so many stories I write about and practices I write about in the book but things like forest bathing or I have a chapter on onsen which is sort of bathing and hot springs and all those things that again some some of them seemed incredibly obvious to me but, and that caught me off guard when the book first came out, for example, you know, the forest bathing chapter, I ended up getting 
asked to speak at music festivals and loads of events around that. And for me, writing that chapter seemed the most obvious thing in the world. Um, but it was really nice to be able to kind of share that different lens on that. Um, and there are just so many things that I think from growing up that a lot of what I do share about are, you know, things, the, the food chapter in particular when I wrote it and submitted it to my editor, she had to, you know, it was like three times longer than any of the other chapters. But I think for me, food was such a big part of Japanese culture and, and growing up and a lot of the recipes I share in it, um, you know, whenever I am cooking it or I taste it, it, it immediately transports me there. You talked about forest bathing and something that really struck me was when I walked through that bamboo forest outside of Kyoto, on the other hand, I live in a neighborhood where there's a forest just about a kilometer away from my place. And I had never really appreciated that in the sense of receiving that filtered sun through the foliage in it. And when I came back from Japan, I made several visits to that forest and every time now also when I go there I always recollect the idea of forest bathing. I romanticize the Kyoto's landscape and all those memories come back. There's a bit of slowness to that whole experience of walking in the forest and getting sunbathed, that, that filtered green light coming through the leaves of the canopies of trees above you. And somewhere I've heard about you mentioning about slowness in one of your conversations as well. What does this slowness mean to you and how do you associate with it? Why do you see it as an integral and a necessary part of life? But I suppose so many elements of tradition and the way people approach things in Japan is about the kind of small slow changes over time. I think one of the things that really fascinates people about Japanese culture is this element of you have these practitioners who perfect their craft over thousands and thousands of days and hours. Uh, and there's something that really captures people about that. So one of my favorite films is uh, Jiro Dreams of Sushi and it's a documentary about a sushi chef. And one there's one person in it who is uh, essentially an apprentice to the, the chef and he has been spending 10 years perfecting how to make like an egg sushi. And sometimes, you know, I guess being working in like a, in the West or in, in Europe and the US, a lot of what you get pressured to do is, okay, you know, career progression and things need to be fast and, you know, move quickly and break things. And actually that sometimes isn't particularly sustainable. And I think that's why a lot of these very old practices and arts have been so helpful in terms of taking things slow, not only to have real lasting change over time, but also to be a bit more mindful and present. So I think tea ceremony is a great example of that in which you know, it's not just the tea itself, it's the calligraphy that is on display when you're drinking the tea or it's the food that you're serving. Um, and all of these things tend to reference the season or the time of year that you're in. And it just encourages us to be present in that moment. And I think 
there is often a desire to either live in the past or sort of go have things move along and actually there is something so important about taking things slow in order to make them last but also to yeah just appreciate and find those kind of moments of gratitude or contentment or whatever it is that you're trying to seek with regards to the sushi film that you referred zero dreams of sushi i watched that film unfortunately it's taken down from netflix india i suppose but i think it's available on youtube if i find it i'll put the link of it in the description for our audience to watch well coming back to zero dreams of sushi i'm trying to see from the apprentice's experience where he's making the egg sushi every day and zero is not approving it days go by and uh, the apprentice is striding to improve without giving up and the day zero approves and gives a nod to the apprentice it's more than an accomplishment a sense of uh the experience of that apprentice is a sense of being whole and complete rather than a sense of accomplishment in a way i'm connecting this instance with one of our earlier podcasts called the disciple the podcast is based on the film the disciple by a young indian director chaitanya tamahane uh last year it was screened at several international film festivals now uh, the film is about a musician's journey it bring forth i suppose the concept of triage a simpler and a direct translation of triage would be practicing with discipline every day a musician who is performing triage basically is practicing the same notations every day mindfully with each day hoping to strike the right chord like the apprentice who is hoping to make the right sushi uh, knowing that there isn't a or one right way to do that it's not about striking those same notations in the order as written on the music chart in front of you but it's more about striking the right frequency and uh being completely devout to that musical composition and the teacher may disapprove or rather not approve the musician's notations the same way like jiro uh, who wouldn't approve the egg sushi for the longest time until he gets it right in the whole process there is a total submission to the teacher that happens in riyaz which you know i'm able to resonate with the japanese culture the submission is not in bowing down but in a way giving oneself completely uh that i find is quite unique and different from the western culture in a way did you have this challenge in sort of communicating to different cultural diasporas about the japanese authenticity and how did you bring that out uh did you face that loss in translation yeah i think that was one of the biggest challenges not only to for me to be able to describe because so many words and concepts i think about there's no direct translation and getting it so uh, i think that's why i suppose a lot of the book is about it framed 
with anecdotes about my own life and my own experience because it was so challenging. And again, this isn't an academic book at all and it's not meant to be, but I think when people do have to describe it in a academic setting, I think it must be such a difficult exercise because I don't, I, you know, I, that was something I personally struggled with and, and the only way I could kind of convey it was through the sharing of experiences. Um, so yeah, I think there was, that was a challenge, but also in many ways, because I always grew up, you know, with an English father and Japanese mother, and I end up living in different countries a lot. I think I always kind of had this role of translator maybe. And it just, I guess it, the book was a natural uh, evolution of that. Um, but yeah, I think it's really interesting for me to see um, when, you know, for example, like French or Spanish or, you know, I've got my book, um, I think really resonated with an Italian audience. And for me, I really want to give thanks to the people that translated my <laughs> original English text, because that must have been such a difficult exercise of not only you know, I was trying to translate these concepts into English, but then translating an interpretation of Japanese culture from English into yet another language must have been a huge obstacle to face. Absolutely. Uh, because when I was also reading about Ikigai, uh, uh, the, the diagram with four circles, which is quite popular, uh, where you have what you love, what you're good at, uh, what the world needs and uh, what something that pays you. Uh, the, the kind of amalgamation of all the four quadrants is where you find your Ikigai. But I think uh, what it pays you is something uh, not in, in, in the Japanese sense. It was never meant to be just monetary, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but then, yeah, because that's like the easy, I suppose the easiest way to distill that is kind of that. But I think um, and that's what's so great about it, I suppose, is that it's, you know, if, if it resonates in a certain way and how people interpret it, but I think there's always, there's always going to be that challenge in really being able to convey um, that. But I think one of the things I've really loved about this, so my second book came out in 2020 and originally um, it really focuses on Japanese hospitality and it was supposed to come out when the Olympics were on because there hopefully would have been a, you know, either a lot more travel to Japan or a lot more interest in it. And what's been so lovely, um, I mean, kind of heartbreaking at the same time is that uh, some people have been given my book or have gotten my book because they were meant to go to Japan or they were really excited about um, the Olympics. And if they haven't been before, and like the first, uh, that, that's again, such an honor as well to have my book be like the first way that someone might discover a, a bit more about Japanese culture other than what's kind of already in the mainstream kind of consciousness, I suppose. So that's another thing that's incredibly um, humbling for me. Could you tell us about that book as well? That's something which is on the way for me. I haven't read it yet. Omayari. Yeah. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes, Omayari, um, which is about the art of compassion. So 
you know, you've been to Japan, so you definitely have, I assume, have come across this. But I think one of the things that really strikes people when they go to Japan is the little, the thought that goes into things. So, you know, you go into a restaurant, you might be given like a hot towel or you, there's a little basket that you can put your handbag in so it doesn't get dirty on the floor. And there are so many instances of people going, I guess, a above and beyond or being considerate in a way that isn't just for kind of an immediate like financial gain or things like that and in Omoyai I wanted to kind of talk about how important kind of compassion is but also things uh, like origami and um, sort of food and sake and just a few other kind of concepts that I wasn't able to cover in Japanese or didn't quite fit so it, it feels like a natural extension of that um, and again it's you know it, it was a really interesting year because so many books um, ended up getting shelved or not published and I'm really happy that Omoyari still came out and all the other versions are due to be published this year um, but yeah, it was a really strange time to be publishing a book. I think when my first book came out, obviously the world was in a pre-coronavirus world. So I was able to kind of promote it and go out and have events. And for this book, it's mostly been on Zoom, um, which has been really interesting. But in many ways, I think it also resonated. And even my first book as well. So I, I write a bit, a word called uh, tsundoku, which means books that you buy, that you kind of just have around the house and don't end up, you know, it, it goes into a stack of other unread books. And I kind of had a little joke about it in the first book of, you know, just saying, oh, this is what this word means. And because so many people were in lockdown, you know, they might have bought it and they might not have time. But then this year, because a lot of people had more time at home, you know, they picked up the book and, and read it. And that was really lovely to see, um, you know, people engaging with, with it uh, in that way. In Omoyari, you talk about compassion. And one of the experiences that I've had was at Shibuya Crossing, one of the busiest places in Tokyo, perhaps. We were there at about... 10 o'clock in the evening and we were trying to find a particular restaurant and we saw a security guard who is probably off his duty and we thought of asking him for help. There's a language barrier, he doesn't understand English and I don't speak Japanese but then he hears the name of the restaurant and pulls out that little notepad with the spiral bound thing from his shirt pocket. This guy makes an elaborate map, he must be in his 60s and, and that map really does not tell us much about how to reach that. So he then decides to walk with us for about half a kilometer to drop us at the restaurant and turns back and goes in the opposite direction. I was completely moved by that gesture. And in a way, I feel that it's not just about those crafts of making uh, origami or the tea ceremony or ikebana, they merely reflect of the Japanese culture, a way of living ingrained in the lifestyle of Japanese people. But these little nuances and gesture like that of our old man at Shibuya Crossing 
I suppose that's the slowness for me and that really moved me when I was there. And it is in such stark contrast to the other side of Japan that is also popular, one that is vibrant and colorful and with Hello Kitty and everything. <laughs> that comes along as well. So how did you see this? How do you see this contrast that coexists in Japan? Yeah, I think it's really interesting because, yeah, obviously you have that as well. And I think particularly, I guess from like a, you know, architectural point of view, maybe it might have a, a resonance. But I think part of the way this culture has emerged, I think, is because, you know, the population is so dense and, and the land is, you know, so you, you just have. So I think actually it's really um, interesting way it's kind of come about I suppose and because for many you know for a very long time Japan was quite isolated from the rest of the world but the culture is really unique in a way that um in kind of how how it is and I think there it's interesting I think a lot of the kind of um juxtaposition I think comes from you know having this like rich kind of old tradition but also this ability to kind of engage with new influences and I think part of it is also maybe in in the way people approach things so um the topic of kaizen for example so like incremental changes over time and like just kind of being able to sort of quickly adapt and and perfect things so um yeah it's it is like a very sort of interesting and unique in, in that point of view, I think. And in a culture where Kaizen exists, something also that coexists is Kintsugi, which is quite opposite to that. Yeah, definitely. Um, but also, I mean, I guess it's like, if you think about, yeah, Kaizen, I think, so Kintsugi uh, is the art of repairing sort of ceramic with gold lacquer. And actually the fact that it has been mended is considered to be a more beautiful um as a result so yeah I think that's uh, but I think that's one of the things I kind of I guess like and I think personally maybe this is just my personal interpretation of it um in that yes you want to do lots of different you know changes over time and and small but actually when things are and think you know one of my favorite proverbs is you know if the current sinks it will rise again and there are always going to be times in our life where things are messy and not good but that actually puts into perspective what is what when good times are happening or what happy looks like and actually wearing the, the kintsugi is kind of like wearing those maybe like you know failures or or whatever it might be with with pride or if it's not pride you know just being able to reflect on that um yeah and japanism as a book and i believe even omiyari both have these japanese proverbs and anecdotes throughout the book it's really brilliantly represented and and it's a book that you know you said that your uh, publishers positioned it as a self-help book. I thought it to be a coffee table book, but whenever I have read those proverbs in it, whatever state of mind I'm in, I can interpret those proverbial quotes in that manner. It's, it's to me almost like Zen quotes, right? Where it opens up so many dimensions depending on 
my frame of mind uh, at that point of time. Both these books, uh, Japanism and Omayari, are a must-have books if one's interested in slowness or living life and experiencing every moment. Or for those who simply want to experience Japanese living, I'll put the links of these books in the description for our listeners. On the other side, uh, are there any new books that you're working on that we can anticipate or expect to have in 2021? So nothing kind of firm and considered. Yeah, I think one of the things I, I, I'm working on a couple of things at the moment. So some are kind of more foods. I went to culinary school, so some of them are more kind of food based. Um, but also I I am really interested in this idea of, um, you know, my I have a a niece recently, um, and I'd really love to. And one of the things I've, I'm working on is um, a book, kind of about Japanese culture for for children. Um, so that's one thing I'm kind of uh, have bubbling away at the moment. Um, but there are always, I think, what I love about uh, you know from Japanism and Omoyai, there are always things that oh, it's like oh, I'd love to talk a bit more about that, but I can't. So who knows? I'm maybe I'm not sure if it's 2021 is the right year for it yet, but. Um, yeah, some of these concepts I wasn't able to cover in the first two. I'd love to to revisit. Through this pandemic, there has been a total shift in the way we work, we live. Uh, many people are consciously now considering to slow down and to look at life from a different paradigm, I believe. Even me and my partner and wife, we fancy of going to some place in remote mountains for a month, maybe somewhere in Japan, because, you know, now we can work remotely from anywhere. And it suddenly seems possible now, which wasn't even in our wildest imagination uh, to do so just last year this time. Uh, do you notice that difference in people in London or wherever you've been in the last one year or so? or even in Japan where your family resides, do you notice that shift in the paradigm after this pandemic or rather through this pandemic? Yeah, I think the thing that has come more apparent to me than ever has been this really crucial need for the separation of work and home. And I don't think people have got the balance right yet. I think part, I mean, for me personally working in a, as a director of a social media agency, I found that during the pandemic and when clients know that you've nowhere else to go, I think the boundary, it's really, you know, I've had calls at outrageous hours in the day and I think actually it's not good for me, it's not good for them. Um, so being really kind of rigorous with that separation has been more important, but also finding things to do that don't involve looking at a screen. I mean, you know, I, I, look at a screen most days um for work but actually it's so important to make time for things like even having a cup of tea and make sure that's like not in front of a screen or things like um you know ikebana and flower arranging I think a lot of the topics I wrote about in the first book are actually quite um you know lockdown friendly activities and bringing that element of like bringing that nature into your home or you know in in the UK for example we're only allowed one you know outdoor exercise a day and so people are really are taking advantage of going to a 
park and being in nature because it's so important so I think that's what I'd hope for in the future is that more people do prioritize that and find how important it is because I think the opposite of that is is not sustainable and could be so easy to to burn yourself out but I think that's why the kind of concept of Ikigai has resonated with people more in this because those you know because we don't have the physical most of us don't have the physical like go to an office and like that separation now people have felt really off kilter I suppose and it's like no this is I think that's a really useful framework for people to be like okay how I feel off balance and maybe it's because one section of um you know my life or my purpose or my balance is off and I think having people take a step back to reassess from a new framework is something that I hope is useful and I hope helps people. I believe hitting that pause button is something that is necessary and the pandemic must have just shown us this bright side, the silver lining in whole of this uncertain situation. I wish that I can have this conversation with you going on and yet I'm cutting off a bit abruptly. But in ways more than one between us Japanese and Indian, it's only cultural, I guess, that cutting this conversation abruptly also gives us this hope that we will have much more to talk and share in the future and we'll have yet another reason to get together and would facilitate many more exchanges between us. And from that frame point, it's only mindful for us to complete this conversation here and try and comprehend through this. But before we sign off, if our audience wants to reach out to you or find you on social media, how can they find you? Yes, so my website is my name. So erinneemilonghurst.com. That's uh, Nimi is always confusing people to spell because it's got three eyes in it. Um, so N-I-I-M-I. Uh, so my... And I just, I'm probably the most active on Instagram. So my handle's at Erinimi, but I am also, uh, have a Facebook page and uh, a Twitter handle as well. Um, but that's in terms of where I usually share my upcoming work or events or whatever it might be. Um, I think my website uh, and Instagram is probably the best place to find me. Great. Thank you once again, Erin. Thank you so much for such a lovely conversation. Thank you for having me on. It's like such a such a pleasure, and yeah, I really appreciate you reaching out. Um, and yeah, thanks for having me on. That was Erin Nimi Longhurst with us today. It was such an interesting conversation for me personally. I hope that something opened up for you too. Do share your comments and thoughts with us. We would love to hear from you on creating thirteen at gmail dot com. Thank you for listening. For more such podcasts and daily writings, subscribe us on creating13.com that is creating13.com. We request you to share this podcast with your friends and family and anyone who may be interested in such topics. Your sharing will only help us to reach out to people and to serve our cause. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. We've put the links in the description. You can also listen to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform now. 
We hope that you have enjoyed this episode and we wish to have you with us again next week for listening a new episode. Until then, take care.